Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow together. Lord, now we would ask that you would uh, open up your word to us. Thank you that, that this has been preserved for us, for today, for your people. Will you, by your Holy Spirit, apply it to our hearts? We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Be seated. So today is the third in our series, uh, Light in the Darkness. And of course, that's also what uh, the name of the, uh, the choir uh, music performance is uh, this evening. That's been our, our theme throughout this month. And we are today looking at one of my favorite doctrines, now, I know I say that a lot. I have a lot of doctrines that I like. But what I love about the incarnation is that it, it teaches us of the, the true nature of God and the attributes of God. And and it can serve even as a, a corrective uh, for us and for even the world we live in this time of year. Uh, we see all kinds of, of caricatures of who God is and what he's like. Um, and that's, that's one of the problems is that that sometimes instead of believing what the Word of God says uh, about God and His nature, people tend to make God in an image that they are either more comfortable with or they, they grew up with or some of them it's that they are afraid of and, and want to avoid. Uh, let me give you some examples of... Uh, uh, ways some look at God, and, and you may recognize this uh, among people you know, and maybe even 
something in your own mind might sometimes uh, go in these directions in terms of uh, uh, the, the attributes or the, the nature of God. Uh, for instance, some see God as what I would call the bad Santa Claus. Now, here's what I mean by that. Think about the, the doctrine of Santa and uh, how he's got his songs about him. And, and what, what's going to be the most prominent one? You better watch out, right? Okay? And I'm talking, I probably need counseling for this because I'm talking about my, my own experiences as a child because when that would be sung and then my mom would take me and I would, you know, walk up to a, a Santa Claus and I knew the question that was coming. You know what it is. Have you been good this year? And I dreaded having to answer Because if, like some people saw him, that he knew everything, he was going to know that not only had I not been that good, but I'm now lying to him about <laughs> how, how good I was that year. And so the doctrine that I got from that is that apparently it's all about my behavior and if I'm good, he's going to bring me maybe what I want. And if I wasn't so good, the threat was that he wouldn't bring me those things. So it was all about me earning my way into his favor. You see the problem? Fortunately, the sand is in my life had a lot of grace. <laughs> that was the other doctrine because it never seemed to work out that I, I only got what I deserved. But some people look at God that way, that it's all about my behavior. If I'm good enough, then things ought to go well in my life the way I want them to go the way I request them to go, if I'm not good enough, then it's doubtful that will happen. That's how some look at God, sadly, because that is not the God of the Bible. Some see him, uh, God, as the, what I, I would call the from a distance God. There was a song, some of you remember that, how people would reverently sing. It was a pop song. Uh, God uh, is, is watching us from a distance. It's a beautiful song, but really, really bad theology. And and whenever there's, there's something difficult that goes on, whenever there's a, a, a tragedy uh, or whether it's, a, you know, something like a, a hurricane or fires or something like that, there are always people that will 
uh, try to defend God in their own way. I'm sure they mean well. And they'll write editorials or they'll write articles and so on and say, look, don't blame God. This isn't, this isn't on him. He's, he's there, but he's watching. And the implication is from a distance. Some see God as what I would call the Downton Abbey staff. <laughs> you know what I mean? In, in Downton Abbey or, or any place where there were servants, you know, you go to the Biltmore house. And, and what do you see? You see the servants, where the servants were, there are bells that they could ring from anywhere in the house. And the, uh, what were the servants to do? When, when they saw their, <clears throat> their bell ring, they had to respond. They knew where it was. They knew basically usually uh, something, the category of what was wanted and so on. And, and so they would respond. And some see God in that way. That... that like the servants, you don't really think about them. They're kind of invisible until you need them. And then you want them to be prompt and to give you just what you want. And some look at God that way. Don't think much about him. But if there's a need, you ring the bell. That's when you pray. And you tell him what you want. And if he's a good servant or God, he will give it to you and he will give it to you promptly because you know what's best in your life. That's how some look at God. And then there are some that, that see God as basically the anti-Satan in other words, there is, uh, there is God and there is Satan and they are both gods. They are co-equal and we are rooting for God because he's the good one, but we need to be concerned about Satan. And so that's how some would view God. God. Now, for a few minutes, I want us to look at this doctrine of the incarnation and see how these misconceptions of God, and by the way, there are many others, but these misconceptions of God are addressed with this doctrine of the incarnation. First of all, and, and we're just going to use Philippians 2 for the, the most part today, uh, what we see, as, uh, as I read it to you, uh, often in Paul's letters, what will happen is he will teach doctrine, and then he will base application upon that. And so, like over in, in Romans, he, we have, uh, you know, 11 chapters of doctrine, and then it says, therefore, starting with chapter 12, and it gives all these applications. That's often the case 
Here in Philippians, what we see is some application, and then it goes to the doctrine, the application of how we need to serve one another and have a right attitude toward one another and be humble toward one another. And then it takes us into why that's the case, and the answer is because of who Christ is and what he did. And that's where we see the, uh, the incarnation reflected here. And let me just give you the, the most basic uh, definition of incarnation. It means in the flesh, in the flesh, in carne. And so the idea is God in the flesh. That's why we use that word. So the first thing we need to understand is that, that uh, prior to the incarnation, Jesus was right where he belonged. We read that in Philippians 2. He says this in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, in saying that, what Paul is emphasizing is what our Westminster Standards, our Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, talks about when it, it, it expresses uh, the fact that, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the same in substance and they're equal in power and glory. So it's not that you got the, the powerful ones, the Father, and then Jesus is right behind him, then, then, then the Holy Spirit. Although sometimes that's how the roles work out. But in terms of their actual being, they are all exactly the same in their power and in their substance and in their glory. So everything that it is to be God, Jesus was and continues to be everything that it is to be God, the Holy Spirit uh, was and always will be. So in, in, in terms of looking at those kinds of things, with, with Jesus then, he was right where he belonged as he was ruling from the heavenlies. Did you... Uh, did you catch the words that we, we just sang in Joy is Dawn? The this, this second verse in particular. Sounds of wonder fill the skies with the songs of angels as, as the mighty prince of life shelters in a stable. Hands that set each star in place shaped the earth in darkness. Those very hands that created the universe cling now to a mother's breast, vulnerable and helpless. What beautiful words to, to express, really, what took place. As the creator of the universe, he was where he belonged, ruling over the universe. But because he knew of the dilemma of his people, he wouldn't stay there. In our 
first in this series, we talked about how the world was plunged into darkness. Where'd the darkness come from? Well, it came from Adam and Eve falling into sin. And, and with the fall, darkness, a deep darkness came over the whole world and the universe, in fact. And so, ever since then, we see in the scripture it moving toward an answer to that darkness. God would not be a God from a distance. Jesus was not satisfied with that. He came instead. He would not be a threatening Santa who only rewards good behavior because only his behavior was worthy of reward. Never ours. Only his. And so then he was right where he belonged. But secondly, he left his rightful place and came into a hostile world. There are places in every city of any size that uh, most of us would prefer not to go. If you live in the city, you kind of know those areas either because of the, the crime or uh, for various other reasons. And, and when you live there, you kind of know. And if you if you're, have the luxury of doing that, you, you might be able uh, to avoid it. But have you ever been traveling and uh, stayed somewhere and then only the next day you realize, oh, wow, I, we probably wouldn't have stopped here had we, had we known this. Uh, when our children were young, we had all four children with us, and we were, we were headed somewhere. It was time to stop, um, you know, like eight hours after they started asking, are we almost there? <laughs> it, was, it really was time to stop. And so I, I saw a familiar uh, name brand of a hotel. By the way, I've learned from this experience, so I don't really do this anymore. But, but we, we pulled in and uh, uh, checked in, uh, got dinner, and we're settling the, the kids down for the evening. And I heard some, like, running outside. Uh, it seemed like it was, you know, back and forth across our, our doors. And so, well, what are you going to do? You, you open the door to look and see what's going on out there. And I still remember, I don't know which son it was, but one of my sons came and he was standing right next to me. And uh, what I saw was policemen running back and forth. <laughs> and so it occurred to me, Maybe I shouldn't be standing here with the door open. <laughs> so I, I closed the door and did the chain and all the latches and put the do not disturb on the outside, you know. <laughs> and uh, we, we were fine. And, and then I, I got just the brilliant idea, maybe I'll look out through the peephole instead of open, <laughs> open the door. 
And things finally eventually calmed down. We watched the news late that night, and there had been a shooting in our parking lot. And apparently in that part of town, that was not unusual. Well, had I known that, I never would have stopped there. I wouldn't have opened the door. I would have avoided that. I would have driven on and so on. Now, go back to what we're talking about. When Jesus came to earth, he deliberately came to a world that was hostile to him. It was so hostile to him that this was the place that was going to take his life, reject him and torture him and kill him. He deliberately did that. He knew all of that, and he came anyway out of his great love for us. C.S. Lewis said, God has landed on this enemy-occupied planet in human form. You get it? He, he didn't come because we were his friends. He came while we were his enemies. Verse 7 in Philippians 2 says, He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So don't miss the way down that Jesus took. Paul says he emptied himself. That's, that doesn't mean that he gave up his deity, but he set aside his glory for a time. He remained fully God, but he set aside his glory. Remember, he left his throne. He took on the form of the servant, according to Paul. That doesn't mean he, he just looked like one, but it means that he was one. He was made in the likeness of man. In other words, found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. He experienced the most humiliating death of the day, the most painful death of the day, being crucified on the cross. And until we grasp how different God is from man, we haven't grasped how awesome this truth is of the incarnation. The creator becoming the form of his creation. The eternal one being conceived, being a fetus, being born. Frederick Beekner describes the incarnation as the creator of the ends of the earth comes among us in diapers. Don't be offended by that. Be amazed. The infinite becoming finite, the king of the universe being born in a stable, the omniscient and omnipotent one taking on a form where he needed to be potty trained where he needed to learn to walk, to add, subtract, to use the tools of a carpenter. God feeling the feelings of a human. And God suffering as a human. 
none of the world religions would tolerate that doctrine. They all call that blasphemy. That God would suffer. And yet that's at the core of the incarnation. J.I. Packer wrote this in Knowing God. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God made man. And that he took humanity without loss of deity. So that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. Of the incarnation. So what's it mean to us? Well, salvation came when Jesus did. And how do we know that? Here's how we know that it all worked. We first see Jesus diving into darkness and the darkness is a fallen world. Throughout his ministry, when, when he sees suffering in the fallen world, when he sees illness, when he sees disease, even when he sees death, even when he is about to heal or resuscitate, it talks about him groaning. Oh! as he sees these things because he understood that the only thing that was going to address these things was him going to the cross and paying for the sin that has caused the darkness to be here. And what he did in walking out of the tomb was he brought light out of the darkness. The Father shows his pleasure, and here's how we know it was accepted in Philippians 2, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." So there it is. God has made Jesus so that there will come a day that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord. For those who are trusting in Christ alone for eternal life, it'll be a statement of faith that will mean eternal life with him forever. But for those who do not believe in this life, for those who would deny him, they will still bow a knee. They will still confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and it will be that that determines their destiny that is not eternal life but punishment. thinking about this this week, I I thought, I don't even know how to express this. Listen to what one commentator said. The lost will never be reconciled. Heaven and earth will eventually be filled with happy beings who have been redeemed to God by the precious blood of Christ. Those are believers in Christ. 
But under the earth will be those who have their part in the outer darkness, the lake of fire. They flaunted Christ's authority on earth. They will have to own it in hell. They refuse to heed the call of grace and be reconciled to God in the day when they might have been saved. And that's permanent. That's forever. C.S. Lewis gave an illustration of the incarnation that I read years ago. It was in, in book Miracles. And I, I didn't like it at first. I, I just didn't like how it was worded, but it's grown on me. Here's, here's what he said the incarnation is like. He said, he said one may think of a, a diver first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, and then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water. Down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, and then back up again. Back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting until suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing he went down to recover. Do you get it? That dripping, precious thing that he had to go down into the depths, into the darkness, into the ooze and slime to come back with, that's us. That's us. And one may think, well, what a dread he must have had in coming. How awful it must have been for him to, to, to leave the throne to come. Well, let me tell you about his dive into that. He didn't hold his nose and reluctantly dive into this hostile world. Here's how Hebrews describes it. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's how great his love for us was. That he didn't, he didn't come with dread he came with joy to rescue his people because it was the only way. It was the only possibility. I read to you last week from Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was executed at the end of World War II, a pastor who was in prison and he wrote about Advent wrote letters to his fiancée that he would never 
get to marry, and he probably knew that. She might have as well. But he, he basically, in those letters, he said, you know, when, when it, it's all stripped down and it all goes away, we're going to have the best Christmas ever because there aren't all those other things to distract us. Here's what he wrote. Joy to the world. Anyone for whom this sound is foreign or who hears it in nothing but weak enthusiasm has not yet really heard the gospel. For the sake of humankind, Jesus Christ became a human in a stable in Bethlehem. Rejoice, O Christendom. For sinners, Jesus Christ became a companion of tax collectors and prostitutes. Rejoice, O Christendom. For the condemned, Jesus Christ was condemned to the cross on Golgotha. Rejoice, O Christendom. For all of us, Jesus Christ was resurrected to life. Rejoice, O Christendom. All over the world today, people are asking, where is the path to joy? The church of Christ answers loudly, Jesus is our joy. Joy to the world. Let's pray. Will you give us cause to rejoice? You have done that. Give us hearts that receive that. And then, Lord, whether it is an outward joy or a deep abiding joy, even in our trial, will you help us to know it's, it's all about Jesus. It's about Christ in us. We pray that you would enable us by faith to believe that. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.